Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Collider Podcast. I'm Collider Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Managing Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. And Senior Editor Vinny Mancuso. Hello. Today we'll be talking about Gerald's Game. That's what y'all voted for to be our topic of discussion. And we'll also use that as a springboard to talk into the other about the other work of director Mike Flanagan. Uh, but to dive right into Gerald's Game, uh, which I had not seen, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I will say the thing that jumps out at me, and I, I will, I'll preface this by saying... The only other Mike Flanagan film I've seen up to this point is is Doctor Sleep, but I, I will say what strikes me about his work from what I've seen is that I think he really cares a lot about the emotional arcs of his characters, and to sort of just say like, oh, he's a horror director, it's like that's technically accurate. Like he is in these sort of swimming in these horror waters, but like there's nothing in Gerald's Game that like relies like on a jump scare or even something supernatural. In fact, I would say the film goes out of its way to not be supernatural. Um, you know, I would say that like, he's, he's really more focused on sort of trauma and abuse and sort of how those linger. Uh, and you, that to me, that's the point of Gerald's game. Like Gerald's game starts with, uh, you know, Carl Gugino and, um, uh, what's his face? A very ripped Bruce Greenwood. Yeah. A very bri- yeah, a ripped Bruce Greenwood. <laughs> who's in his early sixties, by the way, like, Oh man, wow. you can still look that way in your early sixties is, is good to know. Um, yeah, so they go for this sort of uh, weekend, this sort of getaway to sort of you know revive their marriage. He handcuffs her for some rough sex. He has a heart attack and dies, and she's still chained to the bed. And so she's wondering how she's going to escape. And you're sort of like, okay, can this can this sustain an hour and forty minute film? And then sort of what happens is you get this sort of narrative layering about sort of the abuse she suffered uh, as a child at the hands of her father. And I think those sort of narratives really weave into each other very well and paint this really fascinating portrait that uh, Gugino knocks out of the park. I I, I am sort of a st- I, I don't know if like Carlo Gugino has like a bad agent or something. Like for someone as talented as she is, it's kind of amazing. It's like, yeah, she mostly does genre stuff. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's sort of weird, but like, she's great. She's, she hold, she carries this movie. I mean, Greenwood's good too, but I think it's, it's Gugino's show. Yeah, I, for like a long time, I think one of the reasons this movie really made Flanagan a name is for a long time, this was like the, it was just accepted that this was not an adaptable story. Like this was just like, it, like it's one room, it's, it, it's one person in one room. And the fact that like anyone was taking it on, much less Michael Flanagan, who I think at this point hadn't done Haunting of Hill House. I think he had just done uh, like Hush and uh, I think he had Marcus. done this. Yeah. So I think it was just like, okay, this like kind of up and coming horror director is going to do the most unadaptable Stephen King story of all time. And I think he really like established his brand in this. He was like, I'm going to, I'm going to film the unfilmable and make it really emotional. Like he drew emotion out of one person chained to a bet. And I think yeah. like that sort of became the brand of Michael Flanagan. He's like, okay, I'm going to take this story that on its surface is just like clearly terrifying. And I'm going to, I'm going to make you like, cry i'm gonna gonna, gonna make this into an emotional story and i think he's pretty much you know he's kept up with that but this was like the jumping off point for it and i'm still kind of amazed anyone made a movie out of this book because it's 
again, it's only like 60 pages long. It's a novella and it's a person chained to a bed. So the fact that anyone turned that into a cinematic thing is kind of a miracle. And this movie is kind of a miracle. Yeah, it's super cinematic. And and Flanagan is a writer-director. Um, and I think it, it's really impressive that he is such a talented writer. And, I mean, you have a bunch of writer-directors who, like, they kind of lean heavily on one side of that. But it feels like he's pretty even-handed in his talent because the, you know, the writing is what draws out the emotion. And the writing is what connects the horror and the supernatural. So whether it's ghosts or... Um, uh, like just spooky shit, connecting that to trauma and and rooting it in like deep rooted like human experience, kind of opens the door. But then you need you need that executed in a way that's not going to make it come off as melodrama. And I think that's really where he succeeds is that he makes it like it is genuinely scary. Like this this movie is genuinely spooky and cinematic. I like. I, I mean, he works with the same cinematographer both of, most of the time, Michael Fibignari. Um, and there's like a bit of like a warmth to to the frame of, of uh, like a bit of like nostalgic fuzziness to a lot of the the things that he makes. But in this one, like even it's it's cinematically dynamic. So like the it, it could get really monotonous in that bedroom, but he's switching up the angles. He's switching up the lighting. He's switching up um, uh, even, you know, in the script, the narration versus her speaking out loud versus her speaking to someone it's always keeping it uh, not like fresh, not like, uh, you know, assuming the viewer is ADD, but making it, you know, filmable. Like Vinny, as you said, it's not it's a very tough thing to adapt. And all of that takes skill because it's all done with purpose. Like the whenever he changes angles, whenever it changes from, uh, you know, narration to her speaking to someone, it it has a point and it's building towards something. So I don't know. I was it, like, I didn't come to this one until pretty late. I was already a pretty big Mike Flanagan fan. I had already seen Hell House, and I had heard of, like, a scene with a hand. But I didn't know specifically what scene with a <laughs> hand happened. But I knew that she was handcuffed to a bed. Um, and so that that pretty well shocked me. But, Vinny, as you said, I was really taken aback by how emotional I was after watching this. I'm uh, I'm very happy I saw this after... I had already seen Hill House because of uh, Henry Thomas's role. Like, Henry, yeah. <laughs> I don't. Th- I feel like Hill House would have been a very different experience watching him play this like very loving father if I had yeah. seen him in the previous <laughs> like, plan with this, like this gaslighting abuser. And I honestly like, I, I never really thought up until Mike Flanagan, Henry Thomas was never in my head as like you know like a good act like it could happen it's elliot that's who it is i think when i saw him first in hill house i was like oh sweet it's elliot cool me too it's a movie i remember and uh i never really thought of him as you know someone who could be a chameleon but like he's a complete he gives off completely different vibes in these two projects and i'm very glad i experienced the vibe in hill house before experienced the vibe in (laughs) would have changed the experience a little bit (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I would also say, just to, to go back to your point, Adam, about the direction, one of the things that really jumped out at me is that there's not really a score. There is at the very end, but that lack of a score makes you feel even more isolated. There's just no comfort there, and you sort of feel the eerie silence. And it's just those kind of smart directing moves that don't really call attention to themselves. Like, you're like, oh, yeah, there is no music here. And it was sort of like, to me, the a comparison I was thinking of is like, you know, who's, who's another sort of up and coming horror director. And the one that jumped to mind was like Ari Aster, but like, I, I just can't pick up what Ari Aster is putting down. Cause I feel like it's just, it's very Even much. If it's a head. 
even if it's a head or someone's head getting smashed with a mallet. You know? I, I feel like the the best uh, comparison would be something like James Wan and Saw, like because you yeah. know. And I also don't like James Wan as a director. That's fair. I know. I think Saw is abysmal. Establishing your brand by like locking two people in a room and just sort of like showing what you can do with very little. Uh, And yeah, James Wan and Mike Flanagan are very different filmmakers. Uh, I like them both. I like Ari Aster too. Uh, But I just, I don't know. I feel like um, in terms of comparisons, this, and again, this isn't really like Mike Flanagan's first film. Like he was somebody before this, but like he became like, up and coming director Mike Flanagan after this, and then like I think like right after it was Hill House, right? And like that was like oh my god, who's this guy? And then and then became Doctor Sleep. So like this, it was like a very rapid upper trajectory. But this was sort of like I don't know, it's sort of like a a, a, a statement film because there really is like all of his touches in this movie, like the like you said, like just the smart things you don't even notice, even like the editing in this movie, which again isn't Mike Flanagan so much, but like it feels like it's a like whip dash pace when you're just like watching somebody on a bed like it's but the way that they sort of cut between who she's looking at and and it, it, someone will change position just the way the movie is edited you feel like the 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 pace is like barreling on but you're still just looking at one person in a bed and i think that i think that does a lot to the way it was adapted because you never really feel like you're stuck in place even though the movie is literally <laughs> stuck in one place yeah that's the thing like it, it, it's good enough at making you feel trapped without it ever becoming sort of, it, it's a film where like, it's a balancing act because you always feel like the air could go out of it at any minute because yeah. what, what's going to happen? Like, I mean, and I like the fact that like early in the film, there's a little dream sequence of like, ah, I got I got away from it. And the film's like, no, right. it's not going to be that simple. Right. And just sort of like, just, you know, putting that out there is a, such a smart move because it, it tells the, it's like, yes, we know what the audience is thinking and like, why doesn't she just break the bed or why doesn't she just do this? Or, you know, why doesn't this happen? And sort of just being ahead of the audience without sort of breaking the reality of the situation, you know, not sort of pandering, but just saying like, yes, we know where your head is at because also that's where this character's head is at. So you're put, we've put you into the mindset of this character. And so we need to sort of, now that you're already there, let's use that to tell a story about her trauma and her abuse and what she's dealing with and really keep you hooked into that rather than being like, what, you know, a puzzle, you know, like how will I puzzle my way out of like, that's part of the story, but it's not the thrust of it. I feel like it's really smart because there's not like a person alive who doesn't watch this movie and like immediately think like, here's what I would do. Like here's how get out of the bed and he's sort of like it doesn't really matter how you would get out of bed <laughs> it matters how she gets out of the bed it matters what happens to her in the bed so it, it is sort of the thing like you said where people look at movies as puzzles and they're like okay here's the contraption i would put together and he's like it doesn't really matter how you would get out of the bed <laughs> what matters is what happens when she's on the bed and that's the journey i'm going to take you on yeah i also think it does a really good job of and i haven't read the short story but establishing the rules so that it is very clear you know, the the kind of obvious plot holes or, or pitfalls are are covered basically at the beginning. It's establishing that, like, you can scream. No one's going to hear you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, here's uh, geographically even setting up that bedroom. You know where the phone is. You know, uh, you know where all the pieces are that are going to come together towards the end of the film. Um, I think that's just good filmmaking and doing it in a way that uh, it's not it doesn't come off as like exposition or like here. I'm teaching you the rules. It's all organic. 
what what an advertisement for voice con- for voice commands for for Siri. <laughs> okay. Hey Google. Just, hey Google. Help. Call the yeah. Call the. Phone. We just we just set off someone's alarm who's listening to this in their home and has a Google. <laughs> you just told the Google hey, to Siri, go. unlock. They definitely have smart handcuffs at this point too. Like hey, hey Siri, unlock. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I I think it's you know the fact that it has an emotional core that I also feel doesn't play as exploitative gives the film its strength. I never I never felt that this was a story. It's like ooh, uh, here's the real horrors. Like it's like no, this is this is a real thing um, that you can buy into, and like we're gonna take you on an emotional journey. And I feel like you know I mean Doctor Sleep I have. I think is good. I, I again, I that's I haven't read that book. I've, I've, I'm still working my way through my first Stephen King book, uh, The Shining. Um, but uh, I feel like Flanagan is very good at again keeping it grounded. Like there are obviously Shining nods and and references, you know, in Doctor Sleep, but he really makes it about sort of you know Danny's trauma and what he's experienced and sort of his his problems and again that emotional core gives the film its life and running away i mean that's uh, in doctor sleep specifically i really like um how flanagan handles the two stories of abra and danny mm-hmm. of kind of two sides of the same coin both having issues both having trauma but abra is kind of showing the way to uh, you know, kind of step up and move forward, whereas Danny is a little bit stunted. I like that movie a lot too. I think the extended edition is pretty interesting, mm. a little more novelistic. Um, I'm not sure why everyone decided not to see that movie. <laughs> Audiences that was such just a, said no, I thank mean, you. I, mean, I also think that Warner Brothers made a bad. 40. I think they made a bad move releasing it in November. You know, if if you're going to bill something as a horror film and then be like, yeah, but let's skip October. When people are really jazzed for that. I also think they like half committed to the Shining sequel thing. Right. Like the first trailer, like right at the end, they're like, by the way, this is a sequel to The Shining. And people are like, it is. And then like, like they didn't like do, do enough to be like, yes, it is. It's a sequel to that movie. And it just sort of, I, I think like um, most people are just like, what the hell's Doctor Sleep? I'm not going to go see that. I think if they had gone hard, not that I agree with this direction, but if they had like gone harder into this is a sequel to Stanley Kubrick's Shining. People have been like, that's exciting. That's an event film. But it's just like, here's a spooky ghost story. I I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent, but I think Warner Brothers has a real problem selling sequels to legacy properties because they had the exact same problem with Blade Runner 2049. They're like, oh, have people not seen the original Blade Runner? (laughs) This might be a problem. And instead of like working to rectify that, they're just like, oops. But to get back to a studio that's great at marketing, uh, Netflix. Yes. Netflix. But uh, yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I'm trying to think of anything Flanagan's done that didn't like tell uh, paralleling stories as like a device. Like both hauntings do that. Uh, Oculus does that. Uh, this does that. It, it's sort of like I don't know. It's interesting that that's his mode of Does Hush storytelling. Do that? What's that? Does Hush do that? I've only. I don't know. I've not oh, seen Hush. I haven't, I haven't seen. seen... I haven't seen Before I Wake either, which is the Jacob Tremblay movie that, <laughs> that got... he technically made right after Hush, but was like caught up in rights issues for like years. Well, those are the two I've never seen. So if those are the two that never did it, uh, it's, <laughs> it's my so argument. That... But I'm saying that the ones I've seen, that's just like his mode of storytelling. And it's interesting because, you know, most people would rather not bounce around in decades and stuff like that. But it's interesting the way that he he likes bringing stuff together. And I think that kind of 
goes back to his uh, visual filmmaking. He likes, he loves setting tables and like making it all make sense. And that, that can mean, you know, that, that could easily sink a movie where you're either telegraphing too hard or you telegraph too much and it all becomes a jumbled mess. So I don't know. I think his biggest strength, like as a storyteller is like, he's a, he's a juggler. He can juggle tones. He can juggle like threads. And I, 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 I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm waiting for the story where it like kind of doesn't come together, which is why he's, he's exciting to me because he's sort of like nailed hard stories every time. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of waiting for, you know, the one where he doesn't, but it doesn't happen yet. I think, so I saw Ouija origin of evil because I was a Flanagan fan but I did not see the first Ouija movie. I think that one is like a little in conversation with the, I had to Google what happened in the first movie. Cause I didn't care to watch it. <laughs> the reviews of that were terrible, but his Ouija prequel is set in the sixties and is really good. Like really yeah. good. That was like his first big budget thing or like first studio film, I think. Cause that was a Blumhouse and they were kind of like, yeah, the first Ouija didn't work. So kind of like take whatever you want. Um, yeah you know, take take whatever you want approach. But that one has Elizabeth Reeser, Henry Thomas. Like, again, it's working with like frequent collaborators. It's a, it's a period piece, um, but it's also matching up to, again, as far as I can read, the first Ouija movie, which takes place in present day in an, in an interesting way. But it's also, again, about trauma and about, uh, you know, it, it has this really deep rooted emotional core that you don't expect in like the prequel to that board game horror movie that you saw well, yeah like the the lord and miller of the horror genre i think he like yeah. he like made his name doing movies where it's like wow you're gonna make a prequel to the haunted board game movie and it was just good and like you know you're gonna do you're gonna adapt gerald's game and it was just good like he just sort of he takes on these pro i think he, it's sort of like a you know if you if i can do this it'll be a hit so he he does it and they and they're you know I don't, I don't know what a Netflix hit is, but it's widely regarded as, as being good. So I don't know. He's, he, he, to me, he reminds me of those two because it's like, why is the Lego movie good? Why is Ouija Origin of Evil good? It's just, it, 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 it depends on the film. It, it just shows you how it always depends on who's behind the project. And with Mike Flanagan, he's done, he's pulled off some really impressive like home runs on these projects that probably should have been like dinkers. Like they shouldn't, they shouldn't do this good. And I think Gerald Game falls into that. Cause I, I, I remember not even really being interested in this movie when it first hit Netflix. Cause I was like a Gerald's game movie. Like I don't need to be in the same room for an hour and a half, but I was wrong. <laughs> I was, I was completely wrong. About it. No, I, I believe, think... I believe a Netflix hit is defined by bright. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting a sequel. Gerald's game. There so, you go. I will say that, like, uh, that, you know, he's also, it's very smart from a career perspective to sort of be like, I'm going to make these sort of small horror films where, like, I'm not sort of like, yeah, you've got to trust me with, you know, $100 million on your big franchise. It's like, yeah, if, if, the, if the Ouija sequel hadn't, or prequel <laughs> hadn't worked so cool. out, no one gives a shit. He'd be fine. It's the origin of the evil. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I feel like, you know, in Gerald's game, it's like, you know, it's not like, oh, everyone was clamoring to adapt Gerald's game. Don't mm. blow Gerald's game. Like, <laughs> Gerald's game stands are going to be very, very Yeah, hard. exactly. So he's made some smart moves. And now I think that he's really established himself with, like, you know, these haunting, these haunting series. And um, is there supposed to be a third haunting series or are they out of I series? We'll, I guess we'll see. I mean, to haunt. I don't think they uh, announced the second one until well after the first one. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, who that who knows what Netflix? I, like, this is, <laughs> That's true. Who who can possibly tell? But I mean, as far as I know, this is one of their 
at this point, it's become one of their flagships, which is kind of crazy because it's yeah. like it's Stranger Things. Well, that's Netflix, isn't it? Like, oh, we don't know what's going to be a hit. We really don't. <laughs> Nothing tells us. Well, and I really like the idea of like Haunting of a Hill House is not just an adaptation of Haunting of a Hill House. It adapts a bunch of Shirley Jackson works. And then mm-hmm. uh, Haunting of Bly Manor is not just a turn of the screw adaptation. It adapts a bunch of Henry Thomas works. Um, you know, he in the writer's room went back and yeah, they kind of Henry right. James, that's right. Henry yeah, Thomas. not not E.T. <laughs> <laughs> Elliot been pounding no. out novels. <laughs> but I think you said like the writer's room for haunting, like they they did like book reports. They like went and delved into short stories from these famous authors who were writing, you know, decades ago. Um, and I don't know, it, it's interesting to see kind of he's really good at adaptation to kind of bring something new and modern and relatable to stories that have been around for a very long time. Um and I think he's kind of, uh, you know, I think he has a pretty good relationship with Stephen King. He's kind of one of our our preeminent Stephen King adapters. Um, I think he's attached to do a, an adaptation of a revival. Yeah, um, I'm actually reading that now. Um, it's another one where, again, it bounces around between time. And I'm kind of like, this won't make a good movie. So it, <laughs> it kind of has like all the, it kind of has all the Flanagan trademarks where I'm just like, oh, it's a multi-generational tale. And it's not cinematic at all. So I'm sure it'll still <laughs> knock it out of the park. But yeah, that, that's an interesting one, too, because it's just sort of, you know, it, it deals with all it, it deals with trauma. It, it's like heavily steeped in like how trauma from the past, you know, marks your present. And it's just sort of, I don't know, it's, it, it, it's interesting to watch them. But it's, it's interesting to watch somebody so clearly establish their filmmaking brand. And his is depressing, multi <laughs> generational. Uh, you could do worse. You could yeah. do worse. <laughs> Well, I, re- I really like, uh, you know, one of the reasons I really like Dr. Sleep is because I think it marries the book, The Shining, with the movie, The Shining, which obviously Stephen King had major problems with Stanley Kubrick's movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the story that Mike Flanagan tells, which is that when he signed on to direct Dr. Sleep, he emailed Stephen King and Stephen King said, promise me two things. Don't change the ending and Overlook uh, doesn't come back. And he said, of course, I changed the ending and I brought Overlook back. <laughs> but he he said he had to like sensitively pitch it. But like. You know, I, I was listening to him talk about it, and it's really interesting. I feel like a lot of filmmakers would just decide that I think this is a better story. But he seems to understand the root of Stephen King's problems with Stanley Kubrick's film, which is that Stephen King himself is an alcoholic. And if there's no redemption for Danny Torrance, there's no redemption for Stephen King. And so he took that as a kind of a personal affront that the uh, or sorry, Jack Torrance, um, that the Jack Torrance character was made into this like monster that, you know, like it wasn't guess. necessarily the hotel. It was him as well, who was mm-hmm. like a bad person. And Stephen King uh, was like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And he got, <laughs> hit, and he got hit by a car. <laughs> <laughs> like that family guy joke where he writes, short, writes a book while he's been in the air. <laughs> But I, I don't know. I found that really interesting. I think the way he the way he approaches these stories is not like how scary can I be, but like what is the human element here that that most fascinates me? And I think mm-hmm. that I think that endures, and I think that um, I don't know. I'll watch anything he does now. Like he's just kind of gotten that kind of free pass for me of everything I've seen of his. Um, you know, I will definitely watch before I wake a movie starring Jacob Tremblay that's set on the shelf for like five years. <laughs> But, you know, I will say I, I, I get caught up in this whenever I'm talking about my playing and about, how, you know, all the things he does, like about human emotion. But and like and it's like very there. But he's also like a really good horror director that's like great at crafting scares. Like oh, Joe's sure. game is very scary. Like I, I feel like this was uh, it's, this is what makes it hard to talk, especially about like haunting of Hill House, because that is such an effective use of like horror as story. It's like, yeah, we can talk all day about the theme stuff. But it's also like really scary. And Gerald's yeah. game, like the the way he crafts scares are he are. 
like building tension in a single room isn't easy. And when there's only one character's point of view and it's fixed on the same the same exact viewpoint. So I think like the all the stuff with the with the moonlight man or whatever you want to call him, the crypt keeper, the tall man, all that stuff, like the way it's handled, it's it's so subtle. Like he could just have like him popping out of the shadows everywhere. But just like the decision to just sort of have him standing there is so much scarier. And I think what separates like scary movies from like, you know, movies that scare you in the moment are like like you said, the small decisions as a storyteller. And I just think the way he crafts things stick with you way longer than if things were just popping out of nowhere. Yeah. Not, nothing, nothing. I, I, I don't, not, I'm not totally against jump scares and stuff like that, but they, you know, they're an effective tool in the arsenal. But the way, I just really like the way Mike, 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 Mike Cranigan, Mike Flanagan crafts like subtle scares. And that's, that's something that doesn't, you know, that's not, that's not in, in vogue right now. It's it, people want the, you know, the immediate well, scares. They, well, and also, well, I think it's like, it's just effective workmanlike scares that just really get under your skin rather than the quote unquote elevated horror yeah. where they're very, like, I just think it's so overly, it's so overly constructed that it immediately just draws you out of it to be like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, this is like someone like building a haunted house and showing you where everything is and being like, look at the haunted house I built. And it's like, just, I just let me walk yeah. through the thing, you know? Yes, no, I, I completely agree. And I, I, I'm, a, I'm a staunchly anti-elevated horror person. I, I, I hate the term. I hate the idea of it because it's just the difference in a genre between a movie that's good and a movie that's bad. There's no, it's, this isn't. Also, we don't have this, we don't have this term for any other genre. Yeah. Ah, I made an elevated comedy, you know? Like it's... Wes Anderson <laughs> makes elevated comedies. Exactly. <laughs> you know what? He would be the one to use. <laughs> that's true. I made an elevated children's film with Fantastic Mr. Fox. (laughs) Like, I wouldn't say that Gerald's Game is, like, unapproachable for someone who's just, like, getting into movies. Like, it's still just an effective horror movie, but it just happens to be really good. And it also happens to have an emotional core. Like, that doesn't mean it's something better than horror. It just means it's good horror. That's just sort of... I could I could talk about my problems with the elevated horror all day. (laughs) In terms of Gerald's Game, it's just, you know, it's someone... It's a talented filmmaker making a horror film that also has a point and an emotional core. That's all it is. Yeah. And, you know, that's, and I'm happy to have him still making movies and still making haunting shows, even though I will say Blind Manor did miss uh, him doing every episode, but he almost well, stopped it, doing it. So I'm glad. <laughs> kind of to that point, talking about how he, how he crafts those scares and everything. If I remember correctly, I think he said that he, he, I don't know if he like fully edits in camera, but he knows exactly what each shot is going to be. So he's not someone who's shooting a bunch of coverage and then cutting together the scares in the editing room. He knows exactly how it's going to play out, which is how something like in Hill House, um, you know, the, I think it's the first episode where the dad pulls the son and, and is like, I'm going to take you out of this room. Do not open your eyes. Yeah. Like every construction yeah. in that scene, the shot, it, like what he's showing and not showing with the camera is making you scared. And he's not actually showing very much in that scene. But I think he's someone who thinks about every decision like that when he's planning out a scene. He's not just setting up three cameras, letting it roll, and then figuring it out later on. Um, which makes me happy that he's doing every episode of his new Netflix show, Midnight Mass, uh, which is, I think, an, an original horror thing. Which, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, is the title of a book on the shelf in Gerald's Game. Oh, maybe. Which, I, I mean, I could be wrong. but I'm There's another sure. Midnight thing... 
He's working on two midnight things. One is the Midnight Club, which is an ad- adaptation of books by Christopher Pike. And the other thing is Midnight Mass, which is an original horror series that like basically stars all the same people he always works with. If I'm wrong, ignore me. But I, <laughs> I think that there's a shot like real quick of, a, of some book up on the shelf and it's the Midnight something. Yeah. That would not surprise me. Yeah, he signed like an overall deal with Netflix after Hill House, uh, of which Bly Manor was part. But now they're just kind of like, yeah, make spooky stuff for us. So, I will it, hopefully it's better than like every other Netflix deal that has been made. Uh, well, also, I was going to say Netflix could use some spooky material because their horror offerings have been anemic. Awful. Like you go, you go to look, and it's it's no like. I'm not surprised that like HBO Max is being like, look at all the horror films we have. Cause like they have horror films, yeah. <laughs> you know, they have like a whole thing, like where you can just, just dive in and Netflix is like, have you seen sleepy hollow? Yeah. They have, they have, like, <laughs> I have that. One of those possession movies that was made between like 2005 and 2012. And like, none of them were good. And if it's just like possession <laughs> of TK, like possession, they, yeah. <laughs> they have every single one of those. The possession <laughs> of Connecticut. Yeah, exactly. They're all like fake. They all seem like fake titles. But Vinny, you're a good person to have on because I did want to ask this question because I and I'll get more into Bly Manor later because it's part of my recently watched. But I had a friend text me and was like, I finished it. It was fine. Um, Like kind of like eh, it wasn't as scary. And Mm -hmm. I there's a common thing among some of my friends who are not they're far from cinephiles and they're not like horror aficionados. But I do feel like a lot of people and I presume a lot of people who subscribe to Netflix are like, their definition of horror isn't necessarily something good, but something that will scare them. They don't really care if the story's good or whatever. What is your kind of take on like the the frustration of like trying to get people to watch good horror movies versus like, you know, like those possession movies, it's highly possible a lot of people are watching them because they're just like, oh yeah, if I like jumped four times, then that was time well spent, no matter yeah. if the story made sense at all. I mean, it's just one of those things where like, like you said, people when people are they're they're planning their you know their October horror movie a day thing. They're like, what can I watch with all the lights down that's gonna like make me jump and like you know and like and stuff like that. And those are it's sort of like, uh, and I don't know if this is gonna sound really pretentious, but that's sort of like it's like junk food. It's like really satisfying, but like you're not really getting much, uh, you know, in the in terms of like the genre's best you're getting the genre the genre's shallowest like the it's 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 most immediately gratifying and i think like especially a place like netflix that's the kind of stuff they cultivate is just like these early 2000s like slasher remakes or that are from directors who have only directed one thing in their entire life and it's just like <laughs> they, and they made like good money so they probably spawned like this weird little mini franchise like like ouija and it's just like those are the kind of movies that they that they that they cultivate, and it's, and it is frustrating because like there's just there's just so much there's just so much good horror, and it's crazy because I the the Criterion Collection put together like an insane lineup for October, and you know not nobody knows that the Criterion Collection exists outside of like us, but they like the they have the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You, you can go watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and then go watch like eyes without a face and then you can go watch like an ingmar berman film like the they they the idea that it has to be high art to be a good uh horror movie is wrong it just it these these like low budget trashy movies were really influential and i think it's worth giving your time and that's not what's streaming right now like if i want to watch there's like no nightmare on elm street movies streaming there's no nothing they I think I again HBO Max and Peacock they have like the best 
streaming service. I watched Eyes Without a Face on HBO Max the other day, and like nobody even knows that they have HBO Max. <laughs> like it's, it's you can watch Cats on HBO Max right now. Yeah, exactly. The scariest the, film of 2019. Best modern <laughs> horror movie of all time. <laughs> Tom Hooper's cats. I always want to say Toby Hooper's cats. <laughs> but why not? Why not? It would be like less scary. But like, even like yeah, Peacock has like all the universal horror movies. And it's like insane that you can just go watch them right now. You can go watch The Creature Walks Among Us, which is a terrible follow up to The Creature from the Black Lagoon. But like, if you want to get into horror, those are like the building blocks to, to go watch. You don't need to watch The Possession of. Like wh- whoever the, the possession <laughs> of Emily St. Rose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not that there's no good possession movies. I think Scott Derrickson made that one. That was kind of good. Um, yeah. The he made the Exorcism of Emily Rose. We disagree yeah. on whether that's good or not. <laughs> I like that movie. All right. In terms of like the very oversaturated possession uh, genre, but that's again, it's a good. I think overall the problem with horror is that it's such a big, broad thing, and so much of it is bad. But sometimes like the bad stuff is good. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the stuff that gets praised isn't really like scary it's just I, the yeah. definition of horror is just so broad that trying to introduce somebody to horror kind of depends on their personal taste like i like something like night of the creeps which is like you know a cheesy kind of objectively bad movie but because of my taste i'm like i i like this but i would i recommend that to someone who just likes like the scream movies who likes like fun funny horror it's just there's there's it's it's a mess of subgenres and personal tastes and you know it's been going on since the silent film era so it's just i think the problem with introducing someone to horror is that it really depends from person to person maybe more so than anything other than maybe absolutely like i have a friend who she is like just utterly she she won't watch like blair witch project Mm. and just because for her that kind documentary style weird things happening is just utterly terrifying. But some mm-hmm. people are like, the Blair Witch Project is the most boring shit ever. Because right. it's just horror is so personal in that way. Yeah, and you know, what scares one person doesn't scare another one. Like, I, I, I thought I wasn't gonna like Bly Manor because I can't stand creepy kid horror. I'm just like, kids aren't scary. You just like push no. them down a stairs. Drop kid kids. Are not, yeah, exactly. Just, like, <laughs> no kid is gonna hurt me. Like, what are you gonna do? <laughs> but, like, but like, you know, some people are like, screw that little British child that's terrifying like it, it what scares a person is pretty much the same thing as what per- makes a person laugh which is why it's like impossible to recommend it's why it's so stressful to recommend either a comedy or a horror movie because you just yeah. sit there and you're like is the person scared is the person gonna laugh like it's it just changes from person to person yeah. and that's sort of the shortcomings of trying to function as a recommendation engine yeah as a critic you shouldn't and you i honestly don't think you should go in that direction to say like well this is worth your money it's like i don't know it's worth you should spend your money however you <laughs> want your money man <laughs> Well, it's yeah, also it's hard. hard when, it's hard when studios are trying to boil it down, and and they're doing something like the Devil Inside Me, which they all they care about is that opening weekend, and like mm-hmm. who gives a fuck if the ending makes any sense at all? Um, <laughs> Just put it online. Apparently. Meanwhile, Guillermo del Toro was like, "I want to do Creature from the Black Lagoon," and they're like, "Absolutely not," because he wanted to like have it fuck best a human, and, and then he wins best, best picture, the best story ever told. They were like, no, the monster can't fuck. And he was like, okay. And then he watch me. Best picture and best director. And again, who who would have thought? I, I'm, I'm the, like the biggest Guillermo fan. And on Oscar night, I was like, this movie isn't going to win anything. They don't like weird stuff. And this movie is a monster fucking movie. This movie is like the hentai, this is elevated hentai. And it won best movie and best director. And I could not have been happier 
in a million years. Because again, who who knows who knows with this stuff? Who knows what's gonna what's gonna uh, hit? Who knows what's not? And that that I mean that goes to the strength again. It's depend. It's who's making the movie. It's it's yeah. who who's making the choices inside the movie. You can describe Shape of Water to someone, and they're like, "That sounds horrible." And you give it to someone, and they could make a horrible movie. You give it to Kim Do Toro, and he makes a Best Picture winner. So it's it, it there's all these variables that are impossible to predict, and that's that's what makes the horror genre so hard to recommend to anybody. Oh, well, with that, I think let's uh, talk about films we've seen, <laughs> horror films we've seen lately, or or not. Uh, Vinny, what have you seen lately that you want to talk about? Um, well, it's you know it's October. I've been walking, watching a lot of horror movies, and I guess to stick with the Flanagan theme, I recently we talked about a little. I recently watched Oculus, which again, you tell someone what's it about? It's about an e- evil mirror. The mirror is evil, and you're like, okay, that sounds terrible, but it is a genuinely good movie. And I recommend watching it once and being like, okay, yeah, this is interesting. And watching it again after watching Hill House and realizing that it is the exact same plot. Mm. The, haunt, the Netflix's Haunting of Hill House and Oculus, the movie about the evil mirror, <laughs> have the exact <laughs> same plot, except if you just like swap out house and mirror. It's the, it's the same, they go back and forth between time. The mirror makes you hallucinate to steal your, it's, I can't recommend doing that as a double feature enough. I can't really do a double feature. <laughs> Haunting of Hill House is nine hours long. But trust me, it's one of the most interesting things I've ever seen. And it's, I think it tells you a lot about how Flanagan sort of, it's sort of like Sam Raimi doing Evil Dead again. Like he made Oculus and was like, that was fun, but didn't really live up to my ambitions. I'll just do it again over nine hours. <laughs> yeah. And it'll become this massive hit. So I, if you want to like watch a good movie that's really interesting in terms of like one filmmaker's career and mm-hmm. how they evolved, uh, watch Oculus. The WWE Studios produced Oculus. <laughs> I like Oculus a lot. That was my first Mike Flanagan I ever saw. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And then I saw Hill House and I was like, oh, this is kind of familiar. Yeah, but yeah. I still love Haunting of the House because Haunting of the House drops like an emotional like breakdown for yourself just in the middle, like as a treat. Like, yeah, you can have, you can go and have an emotional breakdown now in the middle of this show. Um, yeah, but I like Oculus a lot. Okay. Uh, Adam, what have you seen lately? Uh, well, in keeping with the theme, and because it just came out, uh, and because I just rewatched it, uh, I was going to talk about The Haunting of Bly Manor, um, which screeners for this dropped in, like, August, and, like, I took about 10 seconds and was like, I should wait until, like, October to watch it so that I can, like write features and stuff. And then I watched the whole thing in like two days because <laughs> I was too excited for it. Uh, and I've now seen it twice and it is, I like it a lot and I like that it is very different from Hill House. So if Hill House is like a haunted house grief drama, this is a love story, like a ghost love story, gothic romance, uh, much more in the vein of like a Crimson Peak than uh, something that's absolutely terrifying. And Vinny wrote a really great review of this where he kind of unpacked that idea that, like, it's a little disappointing because Blighthouse isn't as scary as Hell House, but it also has this really great slow burn that, you know, you get to have an emotional breakdown at the end of this one instead of in the middle. So you don't, you, you get to put it off a little bit, but then you just kind what of like flood, flood tears <laughs> in the finale. Um, I don't know. I think it's really sweet. Uh, I do agree that it's missing. It's missing Flanagan directing all the episodes and Flanagan didn't even get to work with his regular cinematographer on the first episode, which I think it misses a little bit because um, he was directing the To All the Boys sequels back to back. 
keep it in the Netflix family. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I I really like it. I'm very curious to hear what people have to say about it because I think if you go in expecting another really super scary thing like Hill House, you'll be super. Dis- you might be super disappointed. But I feel like if you go in knowing it is a gothic romance, then you uh, might have a little bit more patience because it is a bit of a slower burn. It takes a little bit to kind of really hook you. Um, I watched it with my fiance who had not, she hadn't seen Hill House. And I could tell for like the first few episodes, she was kind of like, okay with it. And then really kind of hooked her by like episode five or six. And then she was like an emotional mess at the end. Um, So whereas then we watched Hill House afterwards and like by episode two, she was just falling. So, you know, uh, planning it as an emotional terrorist. But, um, (laughs) but yeah, and I think that, that, performances in Bly Manor are really outstanding. Oliver Jackson Cohen, I think, is really good. Victoria Pedretti is incredible. And Tania Miller, uh, I think, is uh, phenomenal. Um, And if you watch Hill House and you are interested to hear more, we have a ton of, or not Hill House, Bly Manor. We have a ton of Bly Manor stuff on Collider, including extended interviews with those actors done by our own Perry Nemiroff. Uh, I highly suggest checking those out. but yeah, curious to see reactions to Bly Manor because it is, it is a different beast, but I like it for that. And if they do a season three, I hope they go back and find another kind of classic horror novelist um, or even gothic gothic novelist and kind of adapt a, a body of work as opposed to just kind of one particular thing. Um, cool. Uh, for me, because uh, everyone's talking about The Haunting. I decided to watch The Haunting, where my wife's like, hey, let's watch The Haunting. <laughs> 1999's John DeBont directed The Haunting. And <laughs> I got to say, it was a bold choice to to make, have to have someone who has clearly never seen a horror film make a <laughs> horror film. <laughs> it's like, oh, just people want to just see just like big fancy rooms and a bunch of CGI monsters. Is that is that all it takes? Uh, the plot, I mean, it's it's technically based on The Haunting of Hill House in that, like, they have to credit <laughs> Shirley Jackson. But the plot is, is, like, you have these people played by um, Lily Taylor, Owen Wilson, and Catherine Zeta-Jones, who are like, oh, we, we were going to be part of this insomnia study. But really, the guy who's running it, Liam Neeson, he's like, no, I'm, it's a lie. I'm actually going to study their fear. And he never actually does anything to study their fear. <laughs> Like, the house just takes over. Like, he never actually had anything planned, to, apparently, to to study their fear. And so, of course, the house is haunted. Um, it Weird things happen. It's a bad, bad movie. Um, just very, like, I mean, John DeBont, to this point, had done Speed and Twister. And for some reason, they're like, hey, would you like to do The Haunting? And he's like, can I load it up with CGI? And they're like, sure, 90s CGI it up, my dude. It's so, and, the CGI is terrible. I saw that movie more than once when I was young, and I still remember the really horrible CGI. Yeah. Of the faces and, coming through the walls and everything. Oh, gosh, it's so bad. And it's just not even remotely scary in the slightest. I mean, I, I get it's PG-13 horror is difficult, but, like, The Ring is PG-13. Like, you can pull it off. Um but like it's just it's very bad and very dumb and uh but it does have an amazing decapitation i will say just yeah, like cool. search the haunting decapitation uh that that is the best part of the film um <laughs> beyond that it's it's a pre- it's it was laughably bad um it just abruptly ends with her like, by the way, there's some dead bodies. Is that classic? Did he direct it or did he go out? On no, it? then he directed uh, Tomb Raider 
uh, the cradle of life. Yeah. What he has the my favorite five movie director IMDb of all time because it's just like Speed Twister, Speed Two, The Haunting, Tomb Raider. <laughs> what, what a run, my! I mean, his cinematography thing is amazing, but if you just open director, yeah, if you're just like, a, oh, what's this dude directed? <laughs> what a run! And honestly, yeah, what else would you need from any one person? Yeah, that was during the boon where like Terminator Two and Independence Day came out, and they were like just CG fucking everywhere, <laughs> <laughs> just blow everything up. I mean, that's the other thing about like when you're watching The Haunting, it's like the cinematography is atrocious. Like it's like. Not even remote, like you would expect even like on a base level of like competence. It's like maybe we should use like cool colors to emphasize, you know, the coldness of the room. And they're like, nope, nope. The dire- the, 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 they use the same cinematographer as Independence Day. <laughs> and it shows. I will say Independence Day. In terms of like CG filled late 90s, early 2000s horror movies with great decapitations, uh, you'd be better off watching Ghost Ship. Oh, Ghost Ship. <laughs> Honestly, a movie that I think is kind of good. It's not. Yeah, pro- yeah Ghost Ship actually is kind of good. The prologue is amazing. Gnarly as hell. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it doesn't need to be that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's great. Yeah, Ghost Ship, Ghost Ship is worth your time. Uh, the Haunting is not. Um, <laughs> Frequent right. rentals for me at Blockbuster alongside yeah. like 13 Ghosts. 13 Ghosts. I actually just <laughs> recently, another recently watched 13 Ghosts. Uh, looks horrible, but it's still a good time. So, the 30 okay. Ghost at least has like Matthew Lillard and some fun production design. Yeah, Matthew Lillard hamming it up. Yeah, and the and Greg Nicotero doing some cool stuff. It's not a waste of time, but it does not look good. There's a lot of like <laughs> terrible 2001. And and Oscar winner F. Murray Abraham. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, man, that dude's career fascinates me. Oh, <laughs> the the things he chooses well. to do. Um. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Vinny, where can people find you on Twitter? Um, I always forget my hand. At Vinny Mancuso one And Adam, where can people find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can follow me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, just as a reminder, we, next week we have two podcasts. One will be on the work of Aaron Sorkin as we talk about his new film, The Trial of Chicago 7. And then a very special episode where we got to sit, talk with uh, Back to the Future co-writer Bob Gale all about the Back to the Future trilogy. So we got to talk to him about, uh, oh gosh, the you know who wrote Johnny B. Good, that whole fake controversy, and uh, other fun stuff. So you're definitely going to want to tune into that. So thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week. Stay little chico, pit bull, Mr. 305, better said Mr. Worldwide, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game, so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. 
Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply.